0: Looking at Psalm 119, Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing so you can breathe a sigh of relief, but that is the old man. That's not the new man in Christ that breathes that sigh of relief, because this is the Word of God. It is living and active. It pierces to the division of body and soul, of joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and before it all are naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. A Christian, these are the very words of God. With that in mind, let's read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us, his church. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Christian, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep open your Bible in front of you in your lap, as we're going to be looking at it quite a lot together. Uh, Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we're doing a summer series right now called Summer in the Psalms, and we're asking everybody to read the whole Psalter together all through this month. And so anybody get through this week, Um, if you're like me, whenever you come to Psalm 119, what do you do? Oh man, it's so long. (laughs) Psalm 120 is looking really good, right? Uh, But friends, remember, that's the old man speaking. That's not the new you in Christ that feels that way. (laughs) Psalm 119, friends, is uh, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it is longer than many books in the Old Testament. It's even longer than books in the New Testament. And if you're a geek like me, that's what you're thinking about right now. Which ones? Which ones? Or shorter than Psalm 119. I'll give you the answer after the service if you want to know. Uh, but friends, as we dive into Psalm 119, I do have a quick question for you, if that's okay. It's philosophical, so I hope you had your coffee this morning. Uh, friends, is seeing, is seeing the same thing as gazing? Is seeing the same as fixing your eyes, to use the Bible's language? fixing your eyes on something. A few weeks ago when I was preaching here, I referenced a lady named Jennifer Roberts. You may remember her. She is an art history professor at Harvard. And she found that her freshman incoming students did not know how to experience art. Uh, they were often too much on their phone and they didn't know how to actually experience a work of art. So for her incoming freshmen, what she makes them do is she makes them for their first assignment, go to a Boston art museum and sit in front of a painting, gazing at it for three hours straight. She goes on to write in her article, Dr. Robert says this. She says, "What this obviously it's an over-the-top exercise, which she understands. But what she says, she says, what this exercise shows students... Is that just because you have looked at something doesn't mean you have seen it? Is seeing the same thing as gazing? You know, gazing is looking steadily with intent, open to surprise, thought, hope. At what verse did you lose interest when we just read Psalm 119? When did you start to be distracted? Let's look back at Psalm 119. And Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit residing within you this morning, I want to invite you to hear it as if this is the Holy Spirit's yearning within you. This is the heart cry of a born-again Christian, somebody who knows the grace of Jesus Christ, revealed in the person and life of Jesus. And this is what we want more than anything. So Christian, hear this and let this shape you. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. That's the cry of the heart of a believer. Oh Lord, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, then I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now, friends, what I want you to grasp this morning, if nothing else, is this simple idea that what you and I gaze at what you and I set our eyes on, will always, always shape who we are. (laughs) You cannot become who you are meant to be without gazing at something. Everything you look at and gaze at doesn't only occupy your mind, it actually makes you into who you are. I mean, think about it this way. When the Bible talks about gazing, think about what it does to the person gazing. Think about David standing on top of his castle, gazing at Bathsheba as she bathed. How did David change because of what he gazed at? How did David's family change forever because of what he fixed his eyes on? Think about Eve in the garden. <laughs> what did she set her eyes on? She saw that they were good for taste, beautiful to the eye, and she set her eyes on the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And how did Eve change? How was her life different? After that, who did she become? How did that affect her family? Think about Paul, or really Saul at this point in the story, right? Saul was breathing threats, trying to kill Christians and persecute them. And then he met the risen Lord Jesus. And only he saw the light and heard the voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How did Paul change after gazing at the resurrected Christ? Or think about Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. In John chapter 20, what does he say about the resurrection? Resurrection, are you kidding me? Come on, that's nonsense. That's myth. That's allegory. That's metaphor. That's pedantic. I'm not going to believe unless I can stick my finger in the wounds, Aren't you glad Jesus loves sinners like us? Because what does Jesus do to his friend? He says, Thomas, come here. Look at my hands and my side. And gazing at the wounds of Jesus, Thomas was never the same, was he? What Thomas says in John 20 is he looks at Jesus of Nazareth and he says in Greek, my Lord and my God. Quite the statement, don't you think? Ever called another human God? Thomas was forever changed when he gazed at the hands and the wounds of Christ. Christian, what do you gaze at? What do you look at? Psalm 119 in your lap? If anything, if anything, Psalm 119 is an invitation for you, Christian, to gaze at the beauty of God's word. And what you gaze at will always transfigure you. Whether you want it to or not, whether for good or for bad, but what you put before your eyes is making you who you are. And what's happening in Psalm 119 is the psalmist is showing us the beauty of God's word. And what is happening if you are a Christian is more and more, this is becoming the heart cry of the Holy Spirit within you that you yearn to obey all of his statutes, his decrees, his rules, the law, the Torah of God. You want to know God and live and walk in his ways. Look at Psalm 119 though, to gaze at this and why I'm suggesting this Psalm is all about gazing is because this Psalm was never meant to be sung. And the reason I I am suggesting that is because if you look at Psalm 119, look how long it is. And if you look at Psalm 119, you may notice in your Bibles in front of you at the very top of this stanza, verses one through eight, look at verses one through eight. I'm waiting for your heads to look down at the page in front of you. Very good, right? Psalm 119, section one through eight, it has the word Aleph. It may even have a funny little letter, the Hebrew letter for the letter A. And what you may not know about Psalm 119 is this stanza, verses one through eight, that we just read, every line, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, every line begins with the letter Aleph. A, 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 A. all eight lines. And then if you look at verses nine through 16, every one of those lines begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Bet, B, B, B. And so on through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. What's also fascinating about this passage is the author, we don't know who it is, the author of Psalm 119 also uses eight different words to describe God's word. He looks at God's word in eight different ways. Sometimes he calls it the law. Look at verse one. He uses the word law right there. Verse one, blessed are those whose ways blame us who walk in the law of the Lord. In Hebrew, you probably know this word. It's the Hebrew word for Torah, which is sometimes the word we use for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sometimes we call it the Torah, the instruction, the teaching, the law of Yahweh. And then he also calls it testimonies. Look at verse two, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Sometimes he uses the word for word, as in God's word. Sometimes he uses the word rules. You see that in verse seven. I will praise you and I will learn your righteous rules. Sometimes he uses the word commands. Other times he uses the word decrees. Look at verse four. Sometimes he uses the word precepts. Verse five, sometimes he uses the word statutes. And look at verse six. He uses the word commandments. All of those words, those eight words, are all in Hebrew. There are only eight words, there are various ways that we can translate it in English, but those eight different words are all referring to God's word. So there's eight lines in every stanza. There's 22 stanzas for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then there's eight words to describe God's word. He uses each one of those words over 19 times. So what is the psalmist doing? You know, to really understand Psalm 119, friend, what you have to know is that the entire uh, backdrop, the, the backdrop to this psalm is the black cloth of suffering and distress and affliction. It is the black cloth of suffering, hardship, discouragement, and distress. And what the psalmist has done is he's taken his life of hardship in stress and affliction, and he's put it like a black cloth and he's holding up the diamond, the shimmering light of God's word, and he's turning it around so that we see every facet of the glimmering, brilliant light of God's word. Later on, if you read Psalm 119, which I hope you do this afternoon, what happens is he'll say things like, the wicked lie in wait for me. Anybody have any coworkers lying in wait for you just to screw up so they can take your job? He says he's severely afflicted. Anybody here's health, not where you want it to be? He goes on and he says, I'm small and despised. Anybody ever been made to feel like you're small? You're of little significance? He goes on and he says, even princes persecute me. You see, to understand why in the world he is focusing so much on God's word, and he's turning it around like a diamond behind a black cloth, is because he lives in the real world. He lives in a broken world. And he is either gonna be shaped by that world or he can turn his eyes to the word of God and be shaped and transfigured by it. Look at verse one. What would it mean? to be shaped by God's word. Well, Psalm 119 begins with that word blessed, right? I know we don't use that word a lot, uh, but this is a deep, rich word in the Bible, blessed. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. And what does Jesus begin his most famous sermon talking about? Blessed, right? The Beatitudes. So what does it mean that we're supposed to live a blessed life? Uh, Well, I think an easy definition, uh, if you wanna write this down, an easy definition for what it means to live a blessed life is simply this. It is living in God's world by God's grace for God's glory. And there's a lot in there and there's a lot that's not in there. The blessed life does not mean you will always be healthy or wealthy or attractive or funny or liked, or you will always be promoted. Uh, That is not the blessed life. The blessed life um, is a paradox. It is a paradox. It means you live in a broken world. You live in God's world but you do so by God's grace and his goodness, his unearned favor. And you do so so that he receives the glory. I mean, think about this psalmist. He sees himself living in God's world and he sees it only by God's grace, but he does it for God's glory. He doesn't say you know, that everything hard in his life is gonna go away. It's gonna you know, disappear like the morning mist in the sunlight. Um, that's, that's not the promise of what the blessed life is. I mean, think about Jesus's own teaching about what it means to be blessed. You know, how does the Beatitudes begin? What does he say? Blessed are the healthy, for they shall always be liked, right? Blessed are the clever and the smart and the gifted because they'll get what they want in this life. Is that how he talks about the blessed life? Uh, Friends, if you don't get this, Christianity will never make sense to you. Um, You will never quite grasp it. Jesus says in paradox, right? In seeming contradiction, blessed are the what? The poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, what Jesus is showing us is that life is to be lived in a cruciform way. I know that's a funny word. All it means is cross-shaped, cruciform. And friend, you and I are called to live a cruciform life. It's meant to be in paradox. And what that means is you and I are going to experience death. (laughs) We are going to experience suffering and death. And yet, simultaneously, amazingly, and paradoxically, you and I are meant to experience life in its fullness and life like we never thought possible. And the New Testament is constantly bringing us to this realization What does Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, what does it mean that you have been crucified with Christ? What that means, friends, is you are now dead towards sin. When sin comes calling, you have dead ears to it. And not only though you have dead ears to sin, you are also called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. (laughs) And that's a fancy way of talking about putting sin out of your life. Um, Anyone here ever tried to actually put sin to death in their life? It is incredibly hard. And you know why it's hard to rid sin from your life? Friends, because there is a part of us that loves that sin. There is a part of us that loves it and serves it. And for us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, we have got to take something that we love and idolize, something that is making us in its image. We have got to take sin and take it out back to our house, shoot it in the head, (laughs) nail its body to the ground, and watch the ants eat it. (laughs) That's what it means to put sin to death. You have to renounce it and say, I don't just think you're bad. I hate this. And I renounce it. And friends, if you've ever tried to do that, it feels like death. <laughs> and yet, and yet, amazingly and paradoxically, through faith in Christ, not only are you crucified towards sin, you also have the new life. <laughs> That's the whole goal. He is crucified with Christ. And it is now longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I mean, how many times does Paul need to talk about life before you hear it? Uh, Friends, this is what the blessed life looks like living in God's world by God's grace in Christ for God's glory. And it's going to feel like death and life. (laughs) It's going to feel like death and life, and it's a paradox. And it really only starts to make sense when you look at the cross of Jesus. Because in the cross, you see God's hatred and punishment of sin, and yet you see the power of, as the New Testament will say, the power of an indestructible life. Jesus resurrected to newness of life. And Paul can say this, If the Spirit has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in you, Christian, living a new life. Christian, look at Psalm 119. What does it mean to live the cruciform life, death and life paradoxically? It means you yearn to walk in a blameless way. Look at that word way right there in verse 1. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, the great author and pastor, uh, is the one who pointed this out to me. Uh, But he said, North American Christians, we're really good at believing Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And what he means by that is, we know what we mean when we say Jesus is the truth, right? He's right. And we know what we mean when we say Jesus is the life because we believe we're going to heaven. But what does it mean that Jesus is the way? The way. Well, Jesus will say this, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus is, just, is not just, you know, the get into heaven card. And he's not just the guy who is right. He is the way that you and I live our day-to-day life. Um, friends, when you are at work, when you talk to your family, when you're in the living room, the way that you talk and interact with people should remind them of Christ. And friends, you, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, who has written his law on our hearts. If the Holy Spirit is within you, Christian, you yearn to walk in the way of the Lord. You yearn to live day by day in the paradox of taking up your cross and yet living the new life. And so that sheds light on all of the following verses in Psalm 119. This is the heart cry of someone born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, who here doesn't want to do anything wrong, right? Look at verse 3. We don't want to do anything wrong. We want to walk in his what? In his ways. We want to live daily. And of course, God has commanded these things. And we are supposed to yearn to diligently do it. Now, of course, all that sounds great, right? I know you're like, hey, this sounds great, but you know, this is all really hard, right? And that's exactly where the psalmist goes. Right? Look at verse five. He knows God's law is accurate, that he should be living this way, but who can live this way? Look at verse 5. He says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I wish I could live like this, right? Then I shall not be put to shame. Then I could have all of my eyes fixed on your commandments. And then in verse 8, you hear it again, that, that fear that I don't know if I can live up to this. Don't utterly forsake me, God. See, what the psalmist is getting at is, yes, this is All right and good, and we should live this way, but how am I supposed to be empowered to live this way? How can I ever live like this? You know, friends, I don't know about you, but I know sometimes when I hear um, sermons like this or I think about passages like this, I feel like someone has given me a map to the destination that I'm supposed to go to. But for me, I'm like, I'm in a car and and my car is broken down on the side of the road and there's no gas in the tank. And so somebody comes along and they say, here you go, here's the map to where you should be. And I'm like, this is totally right. I agree. This is where I should be. This is who I should become. But I don't have any gas in my tank to get there. I don't have any gas to get there. Friends, what is the fuel? If this is the right path, how do we do it? Uh, Christian, it is not in your effort. It is not in your power. It is Christ in you willing and working towards his good pleasure. And I think the only way you and I really know if it's the Holy Spirit working within us to live this way and yearning for this is I think what you will have is you will have a thirst to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's the litmus test. That's how you know if you have the Holy Spirit yearning to walk in the ways of Jesus. That's exactly where uh, the psalmist goes. Look at verse seven. What's his hope? His hope in verse seven is he says, I wanna live this way so that I will praise you with an upright heart. That is the fuel in his tank. I mean, Christian, when was the last time you worshiped in spirit and in truth? If the Holy Spirit lives in you, he has written his law in your heart. You want to worship him in this way. Jesus says the father is searching for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Friends, worship. I mean, when was the last time you worshiped without cynicism? I'm gonna talk about myself for just a second. Maybe you guys are more sanctified than me, but sometimes when I worship, I'm really cynical. I feel like a hypocrite when I say these words. I'm discouraged, I'm distracted. But friends, the Holy Spirit in us yearns to worship God and see him for who he is. Do you yearn to worship him that way? That's the hope. Verse seven, I will worship you with an upright heart. Only a Holy Spirit Christian yearns for that. Do you yearn for it? Friends, let me just finish with this. And as one pastor said, when I say I'm about to finish, I don't mean I'm about to stop talking. It means I see the exit. <laughs> is seeing the same thing as gazing? Is seeing the same thing as gazing? Can you, can you gaze? Can our congregation gaze? I have absolutely no doubt that everyone in this room is capable of gazing. And you know why? Because statistics tell me it's true. Because on average, the average American gazes at their phone for four hours a day. <laughs> I mean, there is something that you do believe is living and interactive that opens up new worlds, that discerns your thoughts, even tell you what kind of Arby's sandwich you are. It'll tell you what you're going to look like when you're 80. It gives you a sense of community. And it is active. And friends, you and I gaze at it as if it were life itself. But what you gaze at always changes us. Always, it has to. I mean, every ad agency in America knows that intuitively. What you gaze at changes who you are. Friends, are you gazing at the beauty of God's word? It's the Lord's day. I would encourage you to go home and gaze at Psalm 119. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a story God's people are disobedient. They're not following in God's ways. And so God offers an opportunity for them to repent. And you may remember the story. How how are they supposed to be healed? Well, Moses takes a staff and he puts a bronze serpent, the symbol of sin. And he says, if they look at the bronze serpent, if you just look at it, if you just gaze at it, you'll be healed. And so what happens is Moses obeys and he puts a bronze serpent on a staff, and he walks around and as people gaze at it, they are healed. Do you know what Jesus talks about that? You know, John three sixteen. you know, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, you know, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But how do you have eternal life? Do you know what Jesus says right before he says John three sixteen? Right before he says the most famous words in the Bible, He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have life. Friend, look to Christ through his word. Look to Christ. Just like God's Old Testament people looked at the serpent and were healed, you and I are called to look to Christ and be transfigured. Paul says, It this way to the Corinthians. You and I beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image of his son by one degree to the other. Uh, Friends, that's an invitation to gaze at something different and become who you are meant to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God. And that when we think about your statutes and your laws and your precepts, that we can look to his life and see what it means to live and to walk in your ways. And thank you, Lord, that he died on our behalf, that his righteousness is given to us by faith. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that works within us a yearning to gaze at Christ. And Father, we pray this for ourselves. We pray this for each other right now, that we would fix our eyes on you and that we would become the church you have made us to be fix our eyes on you, Christ, amen.